Thank you, Terry, for reading that for us. We're going to hang out there for just a little bit, and then we're going to navigate the scriptures a little bit this morning, um, if you don't mind. And so uh, before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, call upon the Lord in prayer. Our God, we're so uh, just humbled uh, at your love for us, at your goodness towards us. God, once again, uh, just bare minimum, the fact that we have breath in our lungs, that we're able to be here and join together in worship and prayer and the ministry of your word. Uh, God, we're grateful for this. We're grateful for the opportunity to be um, unified uh, in our uh, worship and communion. Uh, God, as we just humble ourselves before you and um, let you just, just, just pour over us, reveal any unclean thing about us, God, and, and renew us, refresh us. God, we pray now that as we enter into your word, that you would be uh, present with us, that you would remind us of your gentle love, of your gentle care and provision for us. God, that if any of us have any perspective of you that is other than that, that you would give us a new perspective today. God, we're grateful for your love. We're grateful for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, Terry, once again for reading that. We're really using Matthew 11 this morning uh, to simply set the tone. Uh, We're not going to be in here uh, during our entire time uh, this morning, but we are going to be in here for a moment as we just take into consideration once again these verses, especially in 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a beautiful perspective of Jesus this gives us, right? Many times we can develop this perspective of Jesus that is contrary to this. We can get so hung up on on different pieces of Scripture. We can get fixated on, on different segments where we forget That Jesus is gentle, he's kind, he is loving to us, he draws near to us. So I want us to begin this morning with this remembrance, that Jesus is gentle. Jesus is gentle, he's gentle to you and I, isn't he? Haven't you experienced it lately? He's near to the brokenhearted, he's humble in heart. He desires to to bring rest to our weary and stressed out and overwhelmed souls. He fed the multitudes out of compassion. He healed the lame and the blind and the diseased. He pursued the poor and the broken and the enslaved. He cast out demons. He mourned with those who mourned. He was gentle. A lot of people uh, come to me and they say, you know, I, I have a hard time understanding this or grasping this because in the Old Testament, you know, all of those other books, it just seems like God is just so concerned with, with chaos. There's death and there's suffering and there's all of these things. And I would say, first of all, well, if you look deep enough and close enough, you would see that God's love and grace and mercy are just as present there as they are here. But it does feel different, doesn't it? How the Old Testament is filled with such things, chaos and suffering, judgment. But in the New Testament, it does seem to feel more grace-driven. And there's a reason for that, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is a reason for that, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is applicable, absolutely, integral to our theology, but the reason the tone feels so different is because Jesus is that big of a deal. And all of that chaos that we see in the Old Testament was was thrust upon Jesus as he suffered on the cross so that you and I 
can experience his gentle grace upon our lives. I, I know that I'm filled to the brim with sinfulness and weakness. I know this, and yet I still have breath in my lungs, and he's still given me a platform, and he has still showered me with blessings. Right? He's gentle. And we as New Testament believers, we have access to God, but it's not by our works, it's not by our bloodline, it's not by our obedience to the law, but it's through faith in his grace poured out on us. I deserve nothing good. You deserve nothing good. And yet we're here in full view of his grace and mercy to us. He's gentle. He calls to my weary heart. He calls to your weary heart. And he wants to carry your load. This is what our perspective that we get from Matthew chapter 11. And I want, us, I want this to set the tone. As we move into this conversation about the gentleness of Jesus, as well as, as self-control, as these fruits of the Spirit, which is where we're at now in Galatians chapter 5, we come to discuss gentleness and self-control. And I want us to go into it knowing that he's given us this Spirit, his character, his gentleness, his self-control. But he's given them to us so that others may come to love him because of these things, just like we have. Right? So with that being said, let's go into it. Let's begin in Galatians chapter 5, looking at our passage for this uh, six-week series that we've been in. We'll read it once more, or I guess twice more if you take into uh, consideration next week. Maybe you'll have it memorized by the end of this series. Who knows? All right. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, forbearance, also known as patience, as we discussed, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, you might have noticed that we skipped over faithfulness. We're in gentleness and self-control today. Next week, we're going to end it all by focusing on faithfulness, God's faithfulness to us, and our faithfulness back to him as empowered through the Holy Spirit. So if this is kind of like a uh, a trick on your OCD brain, uh, in retrospect, when you go to listen to the sermons, just listen to faithfulness first, right, if you you need to do that. Um, And then listen to gentleness and self-control, and it'll be aligned in your mind. But that's kind of how we're doing this. So first, let's talk about gentleness, right? Pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? It's it's gentleness. One scholar uh, puts the definition very simply, and he says, it's dealing with people in a kind manner, with humility and consideration. Pretty easy, right? Pretty easy to understand. This is gentleness. It's humility. It's meekness, particularly in the way that a person deals with another person. And you can kind of see the connections with the other fruits of the Spirit, very connected to kindness and patience and other fruits, including self-control. But let's remember that these are all a byproduct of something internal, right? The fruits of the Spirit are alive and well within us when the Spirit is not dormant, right? When it's unleashed within us as we pursue Christ in obedience and righteousness. So these are a byproduct of a pursuit in Jesus, Now, there is a generic and worldly form of gentleness that I think is a quality um, in a lot of ways, but it only goes so far, right? It reaches its max pretty quick. 
A lot of times we associate gentleness with uh, insecurity or kind of being reserved. You know, that person wouldn't hurt a fly or that person would never go there, right? They're kind of afraid of confrontation. This is, this is our idea of gentleness. They're introverted. They're soft-spoken, afraid of crowds maybe. You just kind of have this idea of just this introverted, reserved person. They're, they're gentle. And a lot of times we can just kind of dumb down this idea of gentleness to just that. It's just a personality trait. It's just a, a demeanor that you carry. And gentleness by these terms, even though there's a, a meekness to it, it, it lacks purpose. It lacks intentionality. Uh, it, it's really quite impersonal. It's really quite powerless. Where spiritual gentleness is very personal and it's very powerful. It's very personal and it's very, very powerful, right? Opposite of, of just the generic forms, uh, gentle, uh, spiritual gentleness, it's anchored. It's intentional. It's, it's purpose-driven. And even though it might resemble the generic form of it sometimes, make no mistakes. It, it's out of a stability and anchored in, an anchoredness in the Spirit of God, in Jesus Christ, Right? And so there's purpose to it. First of all, let's just talk about this. Gentleness is personal. Now, there is great virtue in having a calm demeanor about you, even when you're by yourself. That's a good thing. But nothing's going to test your gentle spirit more than people. Right? Nothing's going to test your gentle spirit more than people. And so it's with people that we have the opportunity to put Jesus Christ on display the most. Think about uh, just leadership. The way that we oversee people. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 3 talks about the qualifications of overseers in the church. Spiritual leaders. Gentleness makes the list. As well as self-control and many others. Right? It should be a part of the way we lead people. I believe it's important to, to kind of note this. Because a lot of times in our minds, we think of leadership as just people with this type A personality. You know, they're loud, and, and they like to micromanage things, and they domineer their subjects, and they just kind of ramrod their own initiatives, right? And that's kind of our, our CEO mindset of leadership, where First Timothy chapter 3 says, no, you, you need to be gentle, self-controlled in the way you conduct yourself. Think about your own places of leadership. Maybe, maybe you actually have the official title. You're a pastor or you are an overseer or an elder or you're a manager or supervisor, a teacher, an administrator. Whatever you are in whatever place of leadership do you, that you have, just gentleness become you in those places. And if you don't have the official title, let me go ahead and throw this out. We are all leaders by implication, Right? Many of us are parents. Many of us are older siblings. Many of us are, are to be examples to people under us. So if you're any, in any form of community, especially the body of Christ, you need to know that you have younger people looking to you all the time to be an example. So by leadership, of, by, by implication, does gentleness become you? Is this how you lead? Is this how you manage people? Is this how you instruct people? But it doesn't just stop there. There's leadership, but there's also just general community, right? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4 calls us to gentleness. The Apostle Paul says this about the body of Christ. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Colossians chapter 3, in a very same vein, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If, you have, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Think about these things, right? Unity, forgiveness. These aren't possible if we don't embrace gentleness. It's through gentleness that there should be a, a notable force of peace and unity in the body of Christ in our community, in the way that we forgive each other, in the way that we are unified with each other. Gentleness is really an essential quality in the community of Christ, and I would say in any form of community at all. Whether it's a church or a social club or a team that you're on, whatever it is, you need gentleness if you need to be able to overcome division, if you need to forgive people. It takes a gentle spirit to get there. And lastly, in talking about how the spirit of gentleness is very personal, let's look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. See, gentleness in the way that it's personal, it, it, it is to, f to define the way that we outreach to people. In the way that we reach out to people in the name of Jesus Christ. To proclaim his name in the public arenas, it is gentleness. Right? So if your outreach strategy is to just spurt uh, harsh words all over social media, you're not accomplishing it. You're not accomplishing anything. If your outreach strategy is to just bust into people's lives uninvited, blurt the gospel at them, and then to take it terribly poorly when they react poorly to you, you're not accomplishing anything. If your style of outreach is to live separate and better lives than kind of this wicked generation around you, your strategy, is to, uh, outreach, your strategy of outreach is to just hope that they'd see how, how better you are and, and so that they'll want what you want, what, what you have. That's not even personal. It's not accomplishing anything. It might be accomplishing the, the, the goal of diminishing the name of Christ, but it's not accomplishing anything good. Gentleness is personal. It's a powerful tool in community and in spreading the gospel. And so let's focus on that a little bit. Gentleness is personal, but it's also very powerful, right? In our mindset, in just kind of the generic forms of gentleness, we think of gentleness as retreating, as introversion, as, as just kind of staying away from confrontation, you know, zero authority, zero anything. But actually, gentleness is very, very powerful. What a powerful thing it is for a believer to be gentle in burning moments. People think power comes by strength, comes by resources or, or decibels. The Bible says there's a lot of power in humility displaying itself through gentleness. Listen to this in Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 25, 15. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. That's powerful. 
A gentle word is more powerful than a million harsh ones. A gentle response to an enemy is more powerful than the harshest verbal attack. A gentle touch or a gentle word can break years of division in a relationship or a marriage. A gentle demeanor or temperament can spare a young person a world of regret. There's a passage that I just lean on, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, as I counsel younger people. You know, we, we deal with a lot of singles in this church who are just, they're in that tough place of looking for love, and they don't know what to look for. 1 Peter 3 is my go-to. It's one that I think every young person needs to mark down in their Bibles and remember forever. It says this, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. That's powerful. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And so I encourage our young people, our young ladies, to not rely solely on their, on their exterior beauty because what happens is that they'll find it, but they'll find it in the eyes of people who are not worth it because that's all they're focused on. The way you present yourself on the outside, your clothing, your jewelry, your hair, or in this day and age, how much you can get away with, with how little you actually wear, these things don't impress God. They never have. They only impress those who care only about those things. And just like a bright light at night, it will attract the bugs. Your beauty is in a gentle and quiet spirit. And as a young guy in this world who, who thankfully found one of these First uh, Peter 3 women, I want to encourage you to know that the loudest person in the room, by the way you talk or the way you dress, it's really not attractive, not as attractive to men who are serious about Jesus, but purity, reverence, a gentle and quiet spirit, these are most impressive to God and to those who see beauty how God sees it. And so we need to encourage our young guys if they're looking for love, to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and to think seriously about these things. And when they find one, here's what they're going to do. Because I remember how I felt when I found mine, my 1 Peter 3 girl. First of all, I was just amazed. Like, who is this person? And secondly, I was intimidated as all can get out. Because you know what happens. When you find someone who is concerned with impressing the Lord, all of a sudden you're on holy ground and you have to tread lightly. And that's a really good place to be in, isn't it? I want my girls, I have two little girls who are, who are three and five, and I want them to be intimidating to the guys around them. Not because they're loud, not because they're opinionated, not because they're uncontrollably strong-willed, not because they put out this, this out-of-your-league vibe, because, but because they have a, giant, a quiet and gentle and reverent beauty to them that says to any guy, I am the Lord's and I desire to impress him. And if that little dude comes across and he sees beauty, how God sees beauty, and so he crosses uh, the intimidation, he asks one of my daughters out, I hope I'm man enough to say, yeah, go for it. It's a rare thing these days to find a young man who sees beauty, how God sees beauty. 
And on the note of purity and relationships, this is probably the best bridge to cross over to our conversation about self-control. So we're moving from gentleness to self-control, the spiritual fruit of self-control. It really, in its essence, it kind of captures this battle between flesh and spirit, doesn't it? Galatians chapter 5, it's all about uh, our flesh versus the spirit. And if we're going to obey or not, right, it gives us the two lists. Self-control kind of captures this. The mistake is that we we read the word self-control and assume that this is the fruit of controlling ourselves. But it doesn't really work that way. This is probably the generic way. And at some point, we, we certainly have a role to play, but it is a spiritual fruit in that there is an assumed relationship between the person and the spirit. Self-control, apart from the spirit, is simply willpower. That's all it is. It's whatever you can muster up by your own will, your own energy, your own resilience. Spiritual self-control, listen to this, it's so counterintuitive. Spiritual self-control is not strength of will, it's submission of it. You get that? Spiritual self-control is not strength of will, but it is submission of it. And the reason we know this is because in Galatians chapter 5, that little phrase self-control, it comes from the Greek that literally means to be in power. And that power is never a reference to human power. It's always a reference to spiritual power, to God's power, to Jesus' power. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That word power there is the same as self-control. It's God's power within you. That's what it is. Ephesians 6 is really the perfect definition for spiritual self-control. The fruit of self-control means that if the spirit is unquenched within us, that he gives us the power we need to fight flesh. See, to be more peaceful, to be more kind or gentle or loving by our own willpower, it'll get us kind of far. But if it's all only what we can muster, eventually we're going to fail. And when we fail, it'll feel like we've maxed out, right? It's one thing to fail and think, well, I got some other options I can try. I'm going to go do it. And there's still a little bit of hope. It's another thing to fail when you're out of options. You're done. There's nothing more. You are maxed out. And when you hit that point, hope is gone. There is no hope. Praise God for the spirit in our lives who gives us hope that we can Go, we can reach a a new capacity that's beyond us. And and at that point, it means that we no longer need to be applying our self-will. We need to submit our will completely to him and let him work. Because if we don't do that, temptation is going to win out every time. We'll be able to hold off for a while, but temptation will creep in. It will get the best of you because we cannot fight flesh with flesh. We can't fight the evil forces going on with our own flesh. We can't do it. Whoever said we could, we have to pursue Christ, get out of the way, and let the Spirit reign supreme in our hearts. That's self-control. And in John chapter 18, I think we see a a place in Scripture where Jesus embodies both of these. And in, in my opinion, let's go there in John chapter 18. This won't be on your screen. So if you want to join me there, that'd be great. John chapter 18. I don't know why this piece of scripture has stuck out to me so much, but, but, but it has. And in my mind, it just, 
It embodies the gentleness and self-control of Jesus as he was in kind of the peak, the, the, the most testing time of his life where gentleness and self-control for any normal person would just go out the window. You would want to be, you would want to react. You would want to embrace harshness. And yet Jesus, he embodies these things. Let's look, John chapter 18, verses 19 through 24. Well, before we get there, let me give you a little background. He, 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 just get, he, he has just gotten arrested, right? He's on his way to the cross. And if you recall, just before this, he's praying in Gethsemane, praying in the garden, sweating blood because he is nervous, stressed beyond belief because he knows what's about to come his way. And yet he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for all things that you would expect Jesus to pray for, Right? And then he gets arrested. Judas, the betrayer, comes, and he comes with about 600 soldiers to arrest Jesus. And Peter is like, no, this isn't happening. He tries to lop off a guy's head and misses and hits his ear. Remember that? And what does Jesus say? No, Peter, don't get in the way of what God's doing here. Right? You can see the gentleness already playing out. So he's arrested, and he comes to this place in John 18 where he's standing before the high priest's. This is what we read, verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. Jesus said, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And it continues from there. Jesus makes his way to the cross, being uh, um, subject to these trials and these sentences and all of these things. And then the mockings and the beatings and the torturings. And he goes all the way to the cross but for whatever reason, this passage, I just, I have this image of Jesus who's just simply answering in truth, right? Here's the tone that I don't get from Jesus. I don't see Jesus saying this. I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know. I don't, I don't get that from Jesus. There's no exclamation points here. I don't get that tone at all. What I see is Jesus gently answering in truth. And in response to truth, he gets whipped in the face. And I imagine Jesus just hair in his face. He just got clobbered. The word here in our, in our version, the, the, the NIV says slapped. The original language seems to imply that he might have got hit in the face with a rod. This wasn't just a, a pop. He got, he got busted in his face, hair in his face. Testify as to what I said wrong, if there is something. But if I spoke to the truth, why did you hit me? Why did you strike me? And we see this tone of Jesus go all the way through. But listen, we know Jesus had power. We know he had authority, right? At any point in time, he could have called angels down. And yet, this was the route he decided to take. He didn't get up 
you know, and, and try to take this guy on, whoever slapped him. He didn't, he didn't try to fight him. He didn't try, try to defend his manhood or his pride. He didn't do any of that. He just spoke truth gently the whole time. And that took him to the cross. His tone didn't change. I don't see it anywhere. Not in one place um, as you read about the crucifixion story where you find Jesus with an exclamation mark behind his words. He had a gentle tone the whole way through. But he still had authority. He still had control. There was intentionality to it. Look uh, at chapter 19, just over just one page. Verse 10, look at this. He says, uh, Pilate says to him, um, do you uh, refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to curse, uh, crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus is basically saying, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you. He gently implies his full control over the whole situation. Jesus had complete gentleness in the most testing place in his life. Every ounce of me would have wanted to fight for my freedom, knowing that I didn't deserve to be there. Every ounce of me wanted to be, would want to be as snarky and as sarcastic as possible as I was being questioned about nothing. But Jesus, in complete gentleness, powerfully walked those lines perfectly. And his gentleness never negated the fact that he was in control the whole time. And so listen, we can take a lot from this. Here's how Jesus got there, right? First of all, he was God in the flesh. He was perfect. We get that. But also, here's what happened. In the most trying time of his life, the full test of his gentleness and self-control, face-to-face with those who were about to nail, uh, hammer the nails into his arms and legs, Jesus had this. He had a confidence in God's sovereign will, and so he laid down his own. He had a confidence in God's sovereign will, and so he laid down his own. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to God, and he says, if there's any way that you could take this suffering from me, please do it. But not my will be done, but yours. And from that moment on, he, he gently approaches the cross and endures it all because he had a confidence that God was going to fulfill his word to his son. He had a confidence in the Lord. This is trusting God. This is faith. And in our confidence, or in our conversation about gentleness and self-control, it may feel kind of like a, an interesting place to land, but I believe this is where he wants to go. Jesus was full in gentleness, full in self-control, and he made his way to the cross because he trusted that this was God's will, that it would be for his good, and that it would be for the good of all who would believe in him. Jesus was confident of this, and so he bore it, he took it. Jesus took God at his word. He laid down his will at the feet of the creator. And I wonder, in our battle against flesh, in our battle against temptation, if we ever automatically are already losing the battle because we're never really convinced that God will actually work it out for our good. Is that possible? We know what the Bible says. We know what he promises, but we still don't believe that his way is better or more satisfying than ours. Really what's on the line in Galatians chapter 5 and the fruits of the Spirit is, is obedience. Will we give in to temptation or will we follow the Spirit's lead? Will we obey or will we give in? 
And if we still lose the battle over and over again, even with this promise of 1 Corinthians 10 in our life that says that, that there's no temptation that can overcome you, and yet we still are overcome, it's got to mean one of two things. One, we don't really believe that obedience is the way to fulfillment, and so we give in to the temptation. We don't believe his way is truly for our good. Or we don't think we can resist the temptation. It's got to be one or the other. And so here's my encouragement to you and to myself. In our places of temptation in life, whatever they are, maybe you're here and you're struggling with the temptation of purity. Maybe it's literally alcohol or drugs of some kind. Maybe it's an obsessive work habit, a spending habit, an obsessive hobby, or, or a proneness to some sort of, uh, uh, of ill attitude. You're just very prone to anger or rash words. Whatever your temptation is, in the power of the Spirit of God, obey God in full belief and see if his way is not more fulfilling. If you're one of those people who's not convinced yet that obedience to him is more rewarding, put it to the test. Try it. Do it. And see if it's more fulfilling. And if you're like me in so many ways and you just don't think you, you can do it, you don't think you can resist temptation. I want to give you a few practical things to help you with this. First of all, understand that you can't. If you've reached that point, it means you're maxed out. Remember, we were talking about that. You're maxed out. You've tried everything you can do. There's nothing more that you can do. So you don't feel like you can resist. Well, first of all, let me, let me encourage you to this. First, pray. Pray. And what I mean by pray is the Matthew 6 prayer. When Jesus says, Tells us, he tells us to pray against temptation, right? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespassers if we, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our trespassers. Lead us not into temptation. It's part of his model of prayer to the disciples. Notice, he's not saying lead us not into sin. We're really good at asking God for forgiveness after we sin. We're not usually good at asking God to keep us from temptation so that we don't get there. He's asking us to cut, us off, cut it off early. Pray against the temptation. Pray against the things that kind of trigger your addictions, that trigger your impurities. Pray against those things. Secondly, be in the word. Read the word. Listen to the word. Be in it. If you go um, back to the beginning of the Gospels and you think about Jesus being tempted by Satan himself. Jesus is exhausted. He had just fasted for 40 days and then Satan comes and just gives him the best that he can do. And Jesus stands against Satan's temptation. How does he do it? He quotes the word of God over and over and over again. Every attempt from Satan, Jesus responds with just scripture. We need this active in our lives if we want to fight temptation. Thirdly, pray, read, and in every ounce of your flesh, in every way that you know how, flee. Flee. Separate yourself from the triggers. Separate yourself from the people who tempt you, from the places and circumstances that bring up these bad thoughts and these bad behaviors from you. Flee. So often people claim to be in some spiritual battle, but they never actually pray against temptation. And they also never really even flee it. And so we stay in this limbo place of constantly struggling with the same things over and over and over and over and over again. We're living just to win the day. 
The spirit is constantly doing battle against the symptoms, but it's never released in such a capacity to actually heal the disease. So we have people who are spiritually surviving day to day and never experiencing the fullness of the spirit in the lives because they're not willing to just simply flee the temptations that they know are coming. How many times I have to have conversations with young people who are struggling with impurity and yet still go see movies without ever looking at a parent's guide. Be smart. Avoid temptation. Flee things. It's so easy to do, but we're never really willing to go there. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out of your head. In Hebrews it says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your battle against sin. What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to flee? My guess is that you haven't tried it all. And so what happens is we stay in this, this, this daily battle. But I want to tell you something. I've not been in ministry terribly long. I've been working here for about 11 years. But I can tell you this confidently. Anybody who is actively praying against temptation and actively in the word of God and actively making strides in their life to just flee the temptations that they know are going to be there, I've never met one person who is active in these things and not growing in God. Not growing in the unleashing of the spirit in their lives. I've never met one. When you put these things to the test, when you do this, this is what happens. And the spirit becomes real and unleashed and it busts out of dormancy in your life. In fact, I'll go ahead and say this, and this is where we're going to go next week. I believe it is the pursuit of Jesus. It is this pursuit of Jesus that makes the full way for unleashing the spirit in our lives. Because believe it or not, God doesn't want us to just live on this earth and to survive day to day battling the same things over and over again. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to flourish. And he wants us to do this so that we can be useful, not just to overcome sin, but so that we can bring the name of Christ's glory on this earth and so that we can fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ. These are, this is the point of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this time to look at your gentleness. God, I pray that you give us that perspective. But God, we have so many things in our lives that tempt us, that draw us apart from you, that get in the way of things. And for so many of us, maybe we do just feel exhausted today because we've been trying to fight the same thing for years. God, would you give us what we need to pray against the temptations? Would you make the word of God active in our lives? May we pursue it daily. And God, give us the wisdom to flee the temptations that we, we, we know are coming if we just applied any thought and preparation. God, as a result, would you make us gentle people? Would you fill us with self-control? Would you let us obey you all the more so that people will see you alive in us? would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior through the way we live and through the way that we display your love to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time is yours to just consider these things. First of all, if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, I pray that you pray no other prayer than this to receive him, to make him your king today. I also invite you to pray against temptation in your life, to actually be a step ahead to not just pray 
forgiveness whenever you sin, but to pray against temptation in your life. You might be surprised at how much God spares you, even outside of your own gaze. And then if you are one of those people who has not applied obedience because you just simply aren't convinced that his way is better than yours, I pray that today you'd pray against unbelief, like Jesus, that you would have a confidence in the will of God's sovereign plan, and that you would have the humility and boldness to submit your own to that. Let's pray about these things.